0: right, everybody, welcome back. We are recording. Let's get to work. We have renamed the podcast from the Hughes Marino podcast to the Corporate Real Estate Insider podcast. So welcome to episode two. Today we are covering a very dynamic and widely talked about subject, a subject that I for one believe is getting very inaccurate coverage in the media and in the market. And that topic is the industrial real estate market. So many interesting things impacting it. Uh, will be a very interesting year in 2023, coming off of a very uh, intense uh, 2022, full of appreciation. Uh, So look forward to covering that. And of course I'm joined like last time by John, Owen and Brian, and we're excited to jump in. Let's get it going. Uh, The first thing that I would love to cover is how incredibly different the industrial real estate market is compared to the office market which we had covered in our last episode. So um, talk to me about how it's different, what's happening with the industrial market, what we expect to happen in 2023.
1: I'll take a shot. So industrial is super interesting. Um, And one of the things that I think it's important to recognize is that I believe the cycles and the swings in industrial will always be less severe than other types of commercial real estate, office space, retail and otherwise. And it's fundamentally for me, because more of the value of the real estate is in the land. It's a simpler building, right? We, we could have an infinite number of buildings that we could develop and build, but we have a finite supply of land. And because more of the value is tied to the land, I think it moderates the swings.
2: What do you think? But you also gotta talk about demand, right? I mean, yeah, say there's, there's more to it than just what's out there. I mean, there's, there's markets that are that were exploding during the pandemic and that continue to explode. And I wonder if there's going to be some sort of, um, you know, I don't know, latency, if you will, like on on the on on that market in terms of it really kind of staying hot or trying to remain such like it's hot because there's markets where there's literally I was in Spartanburg, South Carolina yesterday, and there's 16 million square feet of real estate being developed, industrial real estate. Why? A lot of that was planned, permitted and started construction before this kind of You know, massive wave of demand was upon us during the pandemic and so I'm not being a contrarian for the sake of being one but like let's just think about some of these markets that have a tremendous amount of supply delivering is there enough demand to satisfy that or are we going to see vacancies starting to creep up and therefore rents starting to level off or maybe in some cases go down a little bit
3: yeah I mean I I'll take take that the you know my opinion COVID has really caused a structural change in. Actually, let's take a step back. There's kind of two sides to the story here for our listeners. One is industrial distribution is, is what we're talking about, but there's also the industrial manufacturing side of it and the industrial R&D side of it, where and in, you know, in my world, sitting here in New England, it, the, the United States is back. We are, we are cranking in New England around new high-tech manufacturing, new high-tech R&D going into you know, stage three, stage four, pre-manufacturing stages in industrial buildings that are, that are taking up massive amounts of space. And, and as well as the industrial distribution side of it, where you know COVID has really caused a, a major shift, right? So, so 20% of the market is, is e-commerce. E-commerce drives about three times as much distribution space as traditional brick and mortar and that's growing because of covid it grew at kind of 3x its traditional growth rate so there was just a massive acceleration of all this demand they had forecasted over 10 years accelerated into you know 24 months so we're growing back at a traditional um, growth rate where you're looking at you know somewhere between 10 12% 8 to 12% which with construction slowing down because interest rates are going higher, the availability of land, John, to your point, is less. I think there's going to be a conflux of. We would hope that with a slowdown in the economy, our clients could see a, a improvement in this in the cost of distribution space. But I just don't see it coming. Any, I think there's going to be a slow in the growth rate, uh, but I don't see it take receding or even going flat based upon um, all the different factors that are that are present in the marketplace today.
2: But I do think given costs, you're going to start to see people looking at lower cost markets. I mean, we've got a client that I would, the reason I was in Spartanburg yesterday is you know, real estate costs are less than half they are here in the Seattle area. Labor costs are much less as well, uh, as well. So I think you're going to start to see as rents, if Brian, if your hypothesis is true and rents continue to rise, you're going to see, um, I think you're going to start to see the bigger users looking to other places in the country where there's the affordability. Um, which will help support their margins. So I think that's what
0: might play out and then therefore might lessen some of the demand in some of these hotter markets. The, the affordability in a lot of these second and third tier markets has has really deteriorated rapidly. And you look at a lot of these smaller industrial markets historically have had much higher occupancy than larger industrial markets because there's dramatically less new construction in those areas. So if you assume that the vacancy rates in these new construction markets are relatively small, all of the product that somebody would be relocating from New England or the Inland Empire or a major market like that, maybe maybe near the Seattle, uh, Tacoma ports, for example, all of these buildings are going to be new construction. And when construction costs have gone up, the, uh, up across the board, even if land prices are dramatically less expensive, you still have rents that are so much higher than they were before COVID and before this rapid run up uh, in the cost to construct these buildings.
3: And Tucker, remind me because you've said this before. It, it probably wasn't on a podcast. Um, you know, the other reason is transportation, right? So the cost of transportation, as a, as it relates to, uh, in comparison to the cost of real estate, is only a fraction of it. So are customers moving to lower cost markets to get closer to their customers because because of their entire um, uh, distribution network, or are they moving there really because of the cost of the real estate? I, I would say it's it's more around the transportation and their logistics yeah. and their, their entire logistics cycle, right?
0: Yeah, there, there is a massive misunderstanding across uh, unsophisticated real estate people around what the actual cost of uh, like third-party logistics company is or e-commerce company is um, related to their distribution costs. I mean, when you, when you actually look at real estate costs, they're almost always less than 10% of the total cost structure. What's usually around 50% or more is transportation. Um, One of the things that's really interesting though is that um, while there are a lot of locations that probably could be perfectly optimized from a dredge or transportation cost standpoint throughout the country, um, the labor in a lot of these markets just doesn't support having large distribution centers. You might be able to locate one large distribution center and then all of a sudden everyone in the nearby or outlying towns is fully employed. And then somebody comes in and all of a sudden they have to pay everyone 30 or 40 or 50 percent more above um like a normal uh like hourly labor rate to make these facilities work and typically once you've done that um you have you have this this equation that is very hard to optimize i mean obviously the real estate market is dramatically less efficient than investing in public equities or something but there there's no like secret magic bullet of oh my gosh we're going to relocate this distribution facility to here Nobody knows about it. We're going to have this optimized labor pool. We're going to have reduced uh, transportation costs over a long enough period of time, all of these things normalize. So as somebody based in Los Angeles, doing a ton of industrial transactions throughout LA, Orange County, and the Inland Empire, one of the things that we'll get asked pretty often is like, my goodness, there's all this space up in Palmdale or Lancaster, which for those of you that don't live in Southern California or don't know where that is, it's call it an hour or an hour and a half north of Los Angeles. Well, guess what? There's no labor up there or very, very limited labor. So, um, you know, unfortunately, until we have, you know, amazing robotic capabilities, we're just not going to be able to access a lot of these sort of perfectly geographically optimized distribution locations.
2: I think it's a good point. And for those of you listeners that don't really haven't studied labor, it's what Tucker's really referring to is labor availability and labor sustainability. So there might be markets where there's available labor, but if you or your company decides to penetrate that market and open a facility, and others do as well, how sustainable is that labor force? In other words, like how many people are there before the labor is totally maxed out? And we've seen that happen throughout the country, where people have opted or taken advantage of lower real estate costs, like Tucker was just talking about, and then all of a sudden others do it as well, and then all of a sudden there's no more labor for people. Um, It's something that we've been looking at closely for our clients, and especially those that are looking to open up distribution centers elsewhere.
0: So I, I want to go back to the earlier question, right? What's going on in the market? What do we expect to happen in 2023? We got some answers from from Brian. Uh, oh, and John, you had uh, some insights that you opined on. I think it's really important that we set the background here, right? Like, why why are we in this position? Why, why did rents surge during COVID? Um, and really what it was is it was this perfect storm of, extremely low vacancy going into COVID to start the sudden and massive acceleration e-commerce, as Brian was just saying, Um, in addition to companies holding higher levels of inventory on hand to create more resiliency in their supply chains, right, you don't want to be in a position where all of a sudden you run out of stock of a best selling item and uh, you have huge demand and you your containers are three months delayed because of COVID and you can't get out of China or wherever you're shipping from. Um, And then just as importantly as those factors, um, you had this This massively limited supply in the um, new construction deliveries. And what happened is there were supply chain disruptions, obviously, which we all know about, which caused most of these buildings that were full steam ahead to be built, you know, several months slower, in some cases, six months slower. There's labor shortages, just like there were on the warehousing side, there were labor shortages on the actual construction side of getting these projects built. Uh, Then there were very fearful developers. I mean, at the start of COVID, it was terrifying for everyone. Obviously, Probably more terrifying if you're an owner of office space wondering if people are ever going to go in. I mean, even if COVID was extremely deadly, we would and you know had way uh, higher prevalence and uh, scarier uh, you know mortality rates and all that than it did. We still would have had to figure out some way to continue to distribute goods. It's too fundamental of our economy to say, oh, well, we can't have people work in warehouses anymore. I mean, that would literally be like the end of the the you know of a capitalist economy. So you had this this major capital availability and uh, lack of capital availability and also fearfulness of developers, and that created this massive supply-demand imbalance at a time when the market was already very tight. Uh, So that, I mean, that's why we saw this very large double-digit, in some cases, triple-digit rent growth during COVID in a lot of these major industrial markets. So I just wanted to sort of uh, set that background before we talk about uh, our views of what's going to happen in 2023 it's important to understand the historical background of how we got to where we are today. Yeah, yeah so I...
1: I, I like that, Brian, I like that you brought up the fact that industrial is more than just the logistics, uh, you know, companies that we talk about so, so frequently. They seem to capture all the headlines, but the truth is industrial is this really wide swath of commercial real estate and it includes the manufacturing buildings. It includes the uh, It includes the mom and pops, right? The makers, um, maybe a 20,000, a 40,000, 50,000 foot building. And in some cases, their rent is doubling. Like how do they handle that, right? And we're supposed to come in and help them to navigate, negotiate and find a way through. So our job's never been more important than it is now. Uh, But this idea that we're trying to dissect what's happening in the market now, what are the causes and what's going to happen in 2023? It's really complicated. It's like stormy seas. This idea that you've got like the swell is pulling this way, and the tide is pulling that way, and hurricane-force winds pushing us this way. You know, we we had a normal market cycle, and then we had inflationary pressure, and now we have recessionary concerns, and, and COVID never. It's it, like who? There are so many forces at play right now. So. Realize that backdrop, and let's kind of try and come up with an opinion about what we think is going to happen in 2023. Yeah, I mean, John, you're, you're dead on. I have a client that's in a lease, and
3: thank God we had we had negotiated a long-term client, fixed rent renewal options. But they're paying roughly $16, $17 a foot triple net for an industrial building in, in an urban part of this city. The market rent for the building... Is probably forty dollars triple net, and the market for the F three hundred parking spaces, the equivalent of land for about three hundred parking spaces, where any developer would would expand the building and reduce the parking, uh, they they it's, they have it for free. The market rent on the on that on that laydown yard or however you use it from an industrial perspective is roughly $15, 18 dollars a foot. So they're paying for the building, what the market is today for the parking and we have we have long-term control of the site and we've actually been approached many times and we're we're actually exploring it at times Um, but being patient uh, a buyout on the lease where the landlord would pay us to leave so they could redevelop the site into a lab building into a much more densely populated industrial building potentially a two-story industrial building Um, so there's this there there is that that um, That just acceleration of rents that have created opportunities but it's just really difficult and really challenging to navigate all the different factors
1: in the marketplace today kudos to you brian for getting fixed rate renewal options right fixed rate renewal options crushing it when you can get them you can get them and brokers forget about it but if you look you know you look like hey look
3: where we are this is the path of progress 10 years ago and it's like hey let's you know let's see what we can do this developer really needed us at the time it was an empty industrial building that we were going to put a bunch of capital in to improve because they didn't have capital and uh you know
0: we'll be there for 20 years at the end of the lease only in boston would you have a prime industrial building getting redeveloped into something else (laughs) that just doesn't happen anywhere else right (laughs) i mean in many markets you have office buildings that are being converted to industrial space which is the first time we'd really ever seen that happen. Uh, but but yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, I don't think I have ever seen a single fixed rate renewal option in Southern California for industrial product ever. They, ju- they just don't exist. I mean, they, they may exist if you're dealing with an incredibly unsophisticated landlord that has no idea about anything, uh, but you will not find a single lease in Southern California with an institutional landlord that includes fixed rate renewal options. Uh, but when they exist, I mean, you can hold this developer hostage. I mean, Brian, even if or this this owner hostage, Brian, even if your client didn't want it, just the idea of saying, hey, we're going to exercise our option and then try and buy the building at a dramatically reduced value. There's um, so much opportunity that these developers leave on the table when they provide those options, which is why they never do. But yeah, lucky for your client.
1: Hey, never say never, Tucker. I did a uh, I've done it and uh, I have a client in about 20,000 feet we self-funded the tenant improvements we paid a shell rate for the building it was 50 cents sorry brian out here we do it monthly so six dollars a foot annually triple net but because we're self-funding our own improvements i think it was eight hundred thousand dollars at the time we got renewals at the shell rate no value given to the improvements that the tenant was paying for the building to protect them in the building for 20 years So, so just to bring that into the world of industrial that is a key
3: john and maybe you could talk more that is a key factor when you negotiate a lease for a manufacturing company or or a lab co- a lab tenant. But in this on this podcast, manufacturing or someone who's going to be putting heavy improvements into a building to make sure. I have a story I can tell tell about um, a a Southern California based entertainment company that went into an industrial building at like ten bucks a foot. Put a thousand dollars foot footage about a third of the building. It was about, it was like three hundred thousand feet. And the de- they ended up buying the building for over a hundred million dollars because the developer had jacked the rate so high that they just said, "You know what? What's the number? We'll buy it from you." Because their broker didn't protect them in the renewals that the infrastructure and the improvements that they put into the deal were not part of the market rate discussion when you're calculating market rates for a renewal option, right? And that and that language is so important, and people overlook it. The deal gets moving so quickly, and I can't tell you how many new clients I have that don't have that protection and they've put massive amounts of infrastructure and infrastructure meaning not into the building, right? So it's immovable infrastructure where the building becomes part of their manufacturing process and part of their product that they can't re- replicate without massive amount of cost and they have zero protections in their lease.
2: Well, and if it's not even a fixed rate, I don't want to labor the point and spend an hour talking about renewal options, but we had a client John you talk about makers right like it's the the larger tenants I've seen based on what the transaction I've done over the last two years can absorb the increases even if they're insane um, better than the makers can because I have clients that are makers that are sub hundred thousand square feet that this is their only facility and it's a huge burden to see rent literally double um, so we've had two cases in the last 12 months where they've exercised renewal options now unfortunately they weren't what Brian had for his client in Massachusetts, or John, what you talked about with your client, they weren't fixed, but they were very favorable options. So favorable that we made more sense to exercise, which as you guys know, in the real estate world and those listeners that you know are responsible for real estate, it doesn't happen very often where a tenant exercises a renewal option, but we were essentially forced to because if we were to go to market, we literally would have seen rent um, more than double. Um, and for a maker that this is their only facility, and maybe it's eighty thousand square feet, it's it's painful.
3: And it's something to be said for, you know, most of the time, a broker like yourself doesn't get paid when a tenant exercises. So Correct. For Correct. you to recommend that, it just shows the, you know, the type of the type of approach you have to the business, which is different than if you look at you know the industry as a whole. So I, yeah. I want to call that out. It's it's you don't get paid when tenants exercise. No, you don't.
1: So I think we need to go back and answer the really fundamental question. What's what's going to happen to industrial rents in 2023? After these unprecedented highs, are they going to level off? Are they going to back off? Are we going to see them come down? We'll throw it to the group. I've got an opinion, but let me hear from you folks first.
0: So if if I may, let me go first here. So I'm going to answer your question. But I think a question that is uh, very much on people's minds are how can rents continue to go up in a recession when interest rates are where they're at, when consumer spending is expected to go down? And I think what, what people really need to be thinking before they answer this question is, what would rents have done in 2023 if there weren't a recession, right? How, how much would rents have gone up uh, this year if none of these things happen? And if you come at the, the question from that perspective, the idea that, and here's my prediction, I think that rents will go up in the high single digit percent basis on a nominal basis. So when adjusted for inflation, that's not massive, massive rent growth by any means. That's what I believe will happen. I think that if you think of it in the context of what would have happened if we weren't at 5% interest rates, if we weren't where we're at today in the economy, that, that probably seems more reasonable than somebody coming at this saying, hey, there's real pain being experienced across America and across you know, developed countries. How, how can we continue to see rent, rents and pricing and costs go up and not down
2: I would agree <laughs> so, so I, I don't well think you're gonna, I don't think you're gonna see a big compression in rents um, unlike the office market the two are not synonymous with one another um, are we gonna see double- digit rent growth like we had we like we did see in some markets to the pandemic I don't think so um, I think things are starting to level off but the lack of new development being spurred today, less that that was already planned and under construction during the pandemic, um, I think is going to lead to, in some cases, continued lack of supply, which is going to support that
1: rent growth that Tucker just talked about. OK, so I'll we'll play the role of contrarian. It seems kind to be of- what I always do. Uh, here's what I will say. Uh, industrial rents will come down. It's just a question of when and how much. Like Market cycles are a force of nature. They literally cannot be avoided. That's the way markets work. They overshoot and correct and Start up again, and, and it's this constant process. It's about supply and demand, it's about, um, you know, inventory. And it's never going to be a perfect straight line. It's like Ray Dalio's constant course corrections, and a plane is never on the, the straight path. You know, the market, like the stock market, there's going to be ups and downs and ups and downs, and then there's a trend line, which I believe will be up and to the right. Uh, but the cycle is going to overreach, pull back, and rally again. That's just what they do. Yeah, so we don't know how much okay. uh, yeah. so size and shape the curve
3: i think my opinion is is that we don't have enough information as we sit here today to determine if rents are going to continue to go up at a modest pace or reset because i think there's going to have to be some major pullback in the marketplace for that to happen john and i just it hasn't started to happen yet that is historically i'm with you i, I see you know we'll need to see some major subleasing come on the market big big users decide that buildings that they've leased that are under construction, that they're not going to occupy them and see some real pockets of of softening to have rents pull back. But I just don't see it yet. So I can't really answer you. My opinion is it's going to be 23 is still going to grow. I think when when the the supply that's under construction in 23, if that actually gets occupied and tenants actually spend the money to go and, and build out their facilities, we're through this i think if you start to see some of them pull back um like amazon did and you know in a small way it's only two percent of their their portfolio but if you start to see that i think i'll be with you but right now there just isn't enough information out there in my opinion to determine really where we're gonna go and- well and of course
2: of course i mean we're all just hypothesizing and nobody in the world has a crystal ball is where we'll be a year from now but keep in mind too i mean a slowdown, john could be reflected in single digit rent growth. There are markets, plenty of markets that saw during the pandemic years where there was 17, 25, 30% rent growth. So I think the good news is that I think that's unsustainable, no question. Um, And that slowdown that you talk about might not be negative rent growth, but it might just be single digit rent growth that that Tucker talked about. We we none of us really know for sure. But that's just, that's my hypothesis.
0: So I will actually go out and and say this publicly with the hope that my co-host will keep me honest uh, at, at this time next year in 2024 about the industrial market. I completely disagree. I don't think that industrial rents have the ability to go down this year without some a, a few cataclysmic things happening. So I'll give myself a tiny bit out of an out here uh, because there, there are obviously factors like dramatically, uh, crazily reduced uh, consumer spending. Of course, that could cause there to be industrial pricing that comes down as the demand just plummets. But here, here are the facts. In most major industrial markets throughout the country, there was more leasing volume in 2022 than there was in 2021. So the data that we have here, recording in early January or mid-January, is that all of the leasing activity in 2022 was greater than 2021. The reason that the market performed so incredibly well for developers and landlords was because of a supply issue. It was It was not that demand was crazy. It, it was very high, of course, but it was because of supply. If there were more buildings to meet all of this demand, then rents would have not exploded how they were. There were times in the Inland Empire and throughout some of the other major industrial markets in the country where I was working with companies where we'd be looking for a 500,000 square foot building, a really, really large building. There's not that many users that will take down a building of that size, where to put it in perspective, they might be spending a million dollars a month in rent or a million and a half dollars a month in rent in some of these markets around the country there are not many companies that that can do that and we would be competing against nine or ten or eleven other groups on these deals and guess what only one company wins that building and then you have nine or ten companies that did not win the building that are all pursuing the next building so the the biggest concern that i have with the market and sort of reaching the equilibrium is that the amount of construction starts that you're seeing for 2023 that are that are projected are extremely low. And we might be putting ourselves right back into this self-induced um, supply issue that we had in 2021 that causes rents to actually increase dramatically. Um, so that's a real fear. Like if you look out to 2024, what will happen if we're back to the same supply challenges that we had last year? So um, the, the other thing that I just wanna briefly note is that uh, if all of the new construction under construction uh, right now failed to lease, that we would only have about a six or 7% national vacancy rate for industrial space. That's just not high enough to the point where you're going to see owners of existing buildings allow rents to go down, particularly in this capital environment where everyone has pressures to increase rents, to maintain building value when interest rates are going up and building valuations are going
1: down. That was a nice little rant, Tucker. Well done. So let me ask a question to the group: what, What's the Amazon effect?
3: I think it has very little effect overall. I think it's more of a confidence effect than it is an actual realities in the market. It's less than two percent of their portfolio. It's predominantly buildings under two hundred thousand feet, and um, you know, and there's enough demand behind it currently to make it to, to make it very minimal impact. I think. I think the biggest impact and why it hit the news is that it's Amazon and their name and their size and their growth was was massive, and it's not massive anymore. I mean, seventeen thousand people being laid off, um, but you know that was a that was a, it was like the streaming business. It was a race for market share, and and they just overshot it. And they, if you listen to their CEO, he knew they were going to overshoot it. But it's better to overshoot than to to come up short. So you know at least, at least in in my view it's it's a minimal impact that's getting absorbed into the you know into the marketplace pretty quickly
2: I second that it was sensationalized by the media just because of who they are um, not a big impact on the market at all i think there's a greater impact that will be felt in the office market from for amazon's layoffs than the industrial market so not an issue
3: i mean tucker your market is so interesting because the other side of this is it's really and i was just reading an article in la like and I'm thinking back to New England. It's really, really hard to get an industrial distribution building, never mind manufacturing that drives a lot of jobs. It's hard to get them permitted these days. Like they're encroaching further and further away from where everyone wants those buildings. So there, there's more community meetings. There's more impact on neighborhoods. There's more impact on logistics, like the, the streets and the roadways and traffic lights and. It's just getting really complicated to build, right? So I, I just think that companies are gonna find a way not to spend $30 a foot on their, on their warehouse. It's just not gonna happen. They're gonna find a different way to do it. And that, that's where I think there's gonna be innovation. I think there's gonna be a change in what how companies operate that will be a bigger impact than the demand that's coming into these markets that could push rents into places that they've never even con, you know, conceived. If you look at it from a from a, a traditional supply and demand perspective, like how can that your client spend? So the seven companies competing. What if the rent got to a million dollars, two million dollars a month? Like, what if it doubled? Can they still can they still afford it, or do they have to go look look in a market a hundred miles away? Right? It, it's just how so, does it work? So the, you the it to that you're breaking into free buildings. Like, there's got to be a way.
0: Yeah the the answer to that question is that can they afford it? It's really a matter of can their customers afford it, right? Because most of these companies just pass these costs onto the the ultimate customer. But when you consider that 90% of the world's goods are transported by ocean freight, and that you have the cost per container to get something from China to the West Coast, go from a few thousand dollars to $25,000 during COVID. And we already talked about that for most companies, transportation or, or the term like drayage costs of, of these companies can be upwards of 50%. Well, guess what? That cost to transport ocean goods has gone down by over 90% since the high. So think about how much money that was just saved that could theoretically now be spent on real estate. So I, I really think it's less, can companies, um, can companies afford it, and it's more, will they be able to find innovative ways to save money and run a higher margin, more profitable business by thinking creatively about where they locate their distribution centers.
3: For someone who buys so. a couple, sorry, Owen. Go ahead, go ahead. As I was say, for someone who buys a couple <laughs> dozen eggs every few days, I'm not gonna be spending $8 a dozen for my eggs anymore, like it just can't happen. I mean, It's insane, it's crazy.
2: Well, uh, and, I, and I think the challenge too uh, that gives me concern for those that aren't leasing 500,000 square feet, that aren't big distributors, um, let's not forget about those that are under a hundred thousand feet. Uh, manufacturers that lease the same product that a big distribution center type of tenant would lease. You know, ocean freight costs not in their world. I mean, may- maybe way down the line, but that's not something that keeps them up at night. Um, but what does keep them up at night is the cost of real estate. Because to your point, Tucker, there's only one way to pay for it. You got to pass it through to your consumer. But then the consumers only got so much willingness to pay. At some point, they're just going to say, "I don't need that anymore," or "I'm just going to forgive that and not do it." And so that's what I'm curious to watch in 2023: is that, that what, what's the breaking point? Because only so much cost can get passed through before people just start stop buying, and that could be your cataclysmic event that talks about you know is which is your out to the market eroding, uh, in my opinion.
1: Okay, so back to Owen's point about. Um the the workforce and the sustainability of the workforce and the impact that has on where we can locate these these transportation um hubs so what's the impact and when of robotic trucks and ev fleets
3: it's it's coming too it's a good point
1: it's coming quicker than we realize i think
3: Yeah, Amazon bought a a New England company called Kiva Systems like 10 years ago, which was the automation that they put into their warehouses. So you've got an automated warehouse, and that's when you can start going vertical with your warehouses, right? Automated warehouses with automated fleets delivering through autonomous vehicles. I mean, that that whole supply chain changes, and where you can put the warehouses change. I mean, the other part of it, Tucker, is – you know, capitalism finds a way. So the if you if if you look, the port of Baltimore is deepening their port because they want to be able to accept larger um, vessels because of the cost of landing of them on the west coast. So they think that the vessels will will come into Baltimore and make the trip around and come into Baltimore rather than going to the west coast because it's so expensive to get the goods from the West Coast to the East Coast, might as well just bring them to the East Coast. So at some point there's gotta be relief in those pricing models that we're not looking at today. That's just one example.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, I, I am a big believer in that capitalism finds a way. So I'll, I'll definitely give you the nod on that one. I think the, the only difference is that uh, in, in the Southern California industrial markets where vacancy is so low and there's been historically so much demand for space, uh, it's, it's hard to imagine it taking it, it being achievable in 2023 for vacancy to go up so significantly that we would actually start to see landlords lower prices. I drew, agree with John. Over time and over market cycles, of course, rents are eventually going to come down. Nothing goes up and to the right forever, uh, it, I, I, with rare exception, right? So it's, it's a matter of when will it happen? And we were so underbuilt for industrial real estate in most major markets around the country for so long that it's going to take a very long time for supply to actually catch up to demand. And especially so when you have all of these landlords and developers buffering the amount of supply they're going to build. Um, one, one thing that I think about pretty often, uh, and and maybe this is especially relevant as, as the youngest of uh, of the, The the friends on this podcast, right? But it seems like the world has become so much more in touch and so much smarter. Everyone's trying to buy the dip in public equities. There's a lot more sophistication these days and learning available on investing and, you know, whether it be on podcasts or on Instagram or TikTok of all these people educating and teaching. And I really wonder if the developers of you know, the 2020s and beyond are smarter than the developers of the early 2000s. I mean, how could they not be having seen the financial crisis and the tech wreck and all of these different major economic events throughout their life that are way more publicized than they were, you know, when you had the saving and loans crisis or something like that. So, are we getting better at modulating supply and demand as an economy that reduces the probability of these massive uh, supply-demand imbalances and implosions that cause major recessions or uh, major reductions in rents. I don't know. Maybe I'm curious what you all think.
2: I think maybe, maybe there's better data, and maybe there's if you if you dig into the details, um, you could substantiate why you don't build this today, or maybe maybe that you do. But I think what um, what all those verticals that you talked about—TikTok, Instagram, podcasts, etc.—with that are putting out great data and so forth. What they're missing is human nature and capitalism and greed. And developers build to make money, especially merchant developers. And there's a lot of capital out there right now wanting to be placed, wanting to earn returns versus sitting idle. And industrial is kind of a darling of commercial real estate right now, not office, of course, for reasons we talked about in episode one. And so I think what that's uh, excluding is the fact that there's always somebody out there with a pitch, right? With a story around why their development's gonna work and despite whatever the statistics might tell you that now's the time to build and this is what we need to build. And there's always gonna be someone willing to give them that money, by and large. I've seen this happen. I've been through three recessions now. Uh, I've been doing this 18 years and I'm starting to see things repeat themselves despite the fact that one would have assumed we would have learned before. Maybe you have less people that are you know, out there Gunslinging, so to speak, trying to build as fast as they can, despite whatever data they might be seeing, but there's always going to be a few.
1: And here's what I would say to you, Tucker. I've been through through a few more cycles. Um, Oh, and I've been doing this for 36 years, crazy. That makes me feel so, so old. Uh, The thing about each market turn, like in hindsight, they seem really obvious. We should have seen it coming. We kind of did see it coming. But when you're going straight into them, they're surprising every time. I, like we become so blind to it, we just we, we can't see the future. You know, it's it's coming at us. It's going to surprise us. There's going to be something, uh, maybe not a black another black swan event, but and I all I can say is that the cycle is a force of nature. It will happen. The size and shape and the timing is impossible to predict. But it, it'll come in and something and it'll surprise us. Would be my prediction.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the, it's the how's the saying go? That an economist is, you know, so-and-so economist has been accurately predicting the last so many recessions. Well, he also predicted another 100 in between there that were wrong, right. right? But so it's hard to guess, it's, a, it's hard. And Tucker, that pitch you gave us on, you know, access to information, all this new technology, it sounded like a pitch on crypto, not real estate. So I'm not <laughs> sure if this is the right podcast for us here. <laughs> we right.
1: know how that's turned out, right? But I will say, what you're speaking to, Tucker, is an interesting part of the fabric here, and that is this notion that we are into an exponential age. Things are accelerating at an accelerating rate. And how that's going to impact fundamental market dynamics is going to be really interesting to watch. I I agree. Unprecedented access to information and business decision-making and everything old will be new again. I mean, it's... Well,
2: and one other thing, just to to talk about like these market cycles and what drives them and so forth, I've always said this, is that people buy, by and large, people buy with emotion and they justify with fact, okay? There was a lot of people during the pandemic, across all verticals, like office, industrial, life science, especially life science and industrial, that just took more than they potentially may need. I know this for a fact, speaking for myself, I have clients that are in more space than they, than they than they need, purely because they felt this scarcity kind of mindset during the pandemic, like, oh my gosh, like if I don't take this now, I'm destined for failure or, or I'll never find space. And so it got pretty frenetic in certain markets, especially here in the Northwest, um, where now I'm talking to clients, talking about potentially offloading some space and how we might do that. Now, again, that's not, i'm not suggesting that that's by and large across the nation with most tenants but there it's certainly something that you don't see so what i would suggest is that again i'm not i'm still in tucker's camp that we're going to see a single digit rent growth in 2023 versus any sort of decline but i think what's not being told is the space that's out there right now what you might call shadow space that isn't on the market right it's not listed as available or it's not vacant but could become available if these Tenants decide to offload some space that they just don't perceive the need, at least for the next, you know, three to five years.
1: I've got another question for the group. What, what is the effect of the consolidation of ownership in a Blackstone Prologis? Have they achieved pricing power, or is it still competitive? My experience is it still it's still who controls the land
3: and who's driving. It is, it is enough there's enough diversity in ownership at least in the markets that I've worked in recently that they're, they're always you know, in the mix, but they don't own enough of it to control it. Um, fortunately for our clients, that there's always you know, there's always land available with others that you can pull into the mix and, and make it competitive.
0: I would agree with Brian. I don't think that anyone is anywhere close to having enough property, including Prologis, which owns you know, 600 million square feet of industrial space just in the US alone and a billion square feet globally no one is anywhere near close to achieving the ability to uh, impact pricing on a broad scale. Um, That said, they are impacting pricing on a lesser scale. I mean, like Blackstone's Link Logistics has the highest rents in every market in every part of the country, period. And they are pushing rents to the brink um, all over the place. And there are other landlords who I won't name because I don't want to point out, obviously, that they are underpricing their assets compared to other people. But there are other landlords that are significantly less aggressive at pricing their buildings. Um, so it, it, it is of, of concern for sure. Uh, you know, is there any collusion that starts happening between uh, some of these major industrial owners? That would be very bad for tenants because if you aggregate the five or six largest owners and they were sort of in cahoots around how they price buildings, that could have a devastating impact. But of course, that's why we have antitrust laws
3: that's why you have brokers to normalize the process for clients more importantly on the ground <laughs> that's what we do I mean
0: that's yeah fair
3: it's you know different type different buyer pools the the, the basis that they own the buildings at or the land at um, when they're buying their steel the cost of construction there's so many things that impact it it's not truly like you know, everybody has a different basis, and everyone is is buying, their, their price points are different. And um, you, know, you, see, you do see pretty wide swings in pricing, and it's not necessarily just the greed and the, the aggressiveness of a landlord. It's truly the underlying cost of the development of the project that drive a lot of that. So we're seeing wide swings and having a, you know, running a process to find a quality, low-cost option, even if it's not even if it's not in the right place, is important because it it keeps everybody honest.
0: Another topic I want to make sure we have time to cover is just how is technology driving demand for advanced manufacturing? Uh, Brian, I know that you've been doing a ton of work with semiconductors. I'm curious how you see their real estate demand with the CHIPS Act and other things like that impacting the more broad industrial market. So
3: thanks, Tucker. the United States was 12% last year, 12% of chip manufacturing, semiconductor chip manufacturing. In the 1990s, we were almost 40%, right? So the U.S. has really fallen behind. And if you start to look at, and we don't have to get into those because there's a lot of them, but the geopolitical issues, the global issues around supply chain, around chip manufacturing, a lot of U.S. companies suffered greatly. It was somewhere around, uh, I saw McKinsey had estimated it as a trillion dollars and, and lost productivity um, because of the shortage in chips, right? So so I've seen with the passage of the Chips Act here in New England and with clients all over the United States, a massive, a massive reinvestment. We There's one client, it's not a client, one company I know of um, that just signed five LOIs for a total of almost a million square feet to open manufacturing sites around the U.S. And with semiconductors, it's interesting because the location of the building is a couple of things one is you need to have a resilient market because you don't want you know weather or some sort of a event to to shut you down but it's really power grids water it's water availability it's the quality of the infrastructure of the building there's a lot you know every building is not the same and every market is not the same right so so you've got this investment coming 280 billion which 50 billion of it is going towards uh, the manufacturing side and mature businesses, and that and the, and the repatriating of them back to the United States. So um, it's a it's a market that's very very interesting and it's very dynamic and it's uh, I see it, I see it really driving a lot of growth in the United States over the next you know, number of years. I think one one thing that people should keep in mind on the Chips Act and it's really important in a real estate process is. The incentives you get under the CHIP Act are a, are tied to the incentives you get at the state level. So it's important if you're looking to get incentives to make sure you're operating, a lot of people want to go to these low cost markets, these low taxing environments, but the incentives offered in those states are very low, which may translate to a very low award or no award uh, from the federal level. So it's important to make sure you get the right team in place ahead of time to figure out what markets you should be looking in if that is a big driver of of uh, you know of, of the requirement,
2: yeah. You know, Brian, you talked about uh, semiconductors. Um, same is happening. We're seeing increased demand right now from alternative energy sort uh, users. So, for example, I represent a bunch of fusion companies. Fusion's like the hottest new thing right now with alternative energy. Now we're granted we're years and years away from that being commercialized but it's getting a lot of attention, a lot of funding, same with nuclear energy as well. Um, There's some alternative forms of nuclear energy that's really driving demand. These aren't people that can do this in an office, these aren't people that can do it in a lab. They need the clear height, they have cranes, they've got all sorts of clean room aspects part of their space and where do they need to be? They need to be in industrial space. So it's putting more and more demand on the same space that your distribution tenants, that your mom and pop makers, that your uh, manufacturing tenants are all looking for as well. Um, Again, Part of the reason why I don't see we're, think we're going to see some sort of big fall off this year um, in rents, just because we just are seeing more and more demand from different verticals.
3: Yeah, we're seeing fusion, battery companies, nuclear, um, uh, the collection of heavy metals, a lot of those companies are coming. So how do you recycle? Because cobalt's coming from one mine in one country, or one country in a number of mines, how do you recycle those? There's three new companies, all of them over 50,000 feet, trying to figure that out with requirements in, you know, in Massachusetts right now. We represent um, some of them, but it's, uh, that's an exciting piece of the demand puzzle as well, certainly. You know, another
1: space that is uh, taking down some of this great industrial product, you, you mentioned chip manufacturers. It, it, it's surprising to hear that life science, which we often think of in terms of lab space, you know, the minute we move on to manufacturing, you know, CGMP facilities, it's a lot like you were describing for the chip manufacturers, Brian, where we need, you know, heavy power infrastructure, we need uh, durable infrastructure, we need access to good, clean water and a lot of it. And basically, we just need a big industrial box and we're going to build out the GMP manufacturing within it. But that's taking down a bunch of industrial space in California.
0: I think all of these areas of innovation in aggregate definitely have an impact on the occupancy rates of industrial real estate. That said, these, even at scale, are a pretty small segment of the total uh, industrial square footage. So uh, safe to say, is advanced manufacturing impacting industrial real estate favorably? Of course, is it having a massive impact? Is it the reason that rents are going to go up? Absolutely not. Um, that, That said, I'll also add that One of the interesting phenomenons in Southern California, and this has been true for a long time, is that this is a massive aerospace and defense hub, and we've seen so many of these upstart companies that are sort of uh, following in the wake of um, SpaceX, uh, multi-company launch abilities, and that's opened this uh, whole new era of space companies, whether it be satellites, uh, experiments in space, whatever they may be up to that uh, is really fascinating and driving a lot of demand for industrial real estate. That said, most of the demand for that type of industrial real estate is more of a flex building, which of course, is part of the industrial market. But um, similarly to these fusion companies that Owen was talking about, it's super important for the engineering talent that works on the hardware to be able to also work on the software in some cases, or at the very least, be in close proximity to the software talent, so they can constantly iterate on these pro- uh, on these products. One of the challenges that these legacy defense companies have is that the product iteration is extremely slow. You need to roll out a new piece of code, go test it on the piece of hardware, and co- and iterate and get that iteration cycle down as low as you possibly can. That's been a big part of bringing the sort of Silicon Valley mindset of innovation to these hardware technology verticals across. All of the different areas that you know Brian Owen and John uh, have talked about. So, anyways, that's that's super interesting. Um, also exciting to think what new advanced manufacturing companies come out of the exploration of some of these other areas on the periodic table that are maybe less explored than lithium and fusion and these these different um, you know emerging areas and new science.
1: I love that you worked the periodic table into our pod, Tucker. <laughs>
0: I try. So, guys, I gotta
2: I imagine our listeners, and we're probably getting close to wrapping up here, you know, they've heard a lot of opinions on the market, what's going on across the country, but I think the biggest question, and I'm just speculating here that everyone's going to have is, okay, so regardless of what happens, it's a tight market, okay? What are you doing? How are you advising your clients? Like, what, what does somebody do, Tucker? You talk about the Inland Empire representing a half a million square foot tenant, that's competing with nine other people for the same space so talk to us I'd love to, everyone to offer their opinion like maybe start with you Tucker like what do you do like if you're that if you're that tenant and how are you as a broker advising them
0: yeah it's, it's really challenging I, I think we should talk about a couple of different scenarios first the one that you brought up directly say you're representing a 500,000 square foot global company that really needs a new distribution facility in the inland Empire and there's very few buildings that are going to deliver on a time frame that work for you What do you do? Well, you really need to understand what's important to your client. In many instances, and this is what drove pricing going up so dramatically, all they said is, We need this facility. It almost doesn't matter if we pay 20% more than market. We know somebody will. We need this facility. If we get this facility, we're going to make tens or hundreds of millions of dollars by being able to operate out of this distribution facility. And in instances like that, you have to take an approach where you give the ownership a extremely high confidence level that you're going to close. You have to be really easy to work with and move incredibly fast, um, and that's that, that's it. But the vast majority of times, it, what it comes down to is the creditworthiness of the company. If you're competing with Amazon or with Ryder Logistics or U-Haul or some of these giant Fortune 100, Fortune 250 companies that have impeccable credit, and you're a local 3PL, it is essentially a Impossibility to win that building. And part of um, that process is being realistic around, based on the demand for a particular building, is it winnable? And how do you make sure that instead of spending all of your time and energy pursuing this building to the ends of the earth, knowing that you probably won't win and you're really just a backup in case everything else falls apart. Instead, you have to go to the second, third, fourth, fifth choice building before the 10 people that lose on the first choice building all swarm that building. So there's a lot of strategy, but I think the, the the better question here is: What do you do when you're in a when you're coming off of a long-term lease? You're in the Inland Empire. Say it's a low vacancy market. There's not really many alternative options nearby. How do you negotiate that renewal at the best possible terms? And that is also extremely challenging, albeit less so than the you know situation that we just described. And what it comes down to is figuring out how to get. The best possible outcome given the circumstances. That's almost always a major increase in rents that you're paying, but it, it depends. I mean, what I'm what I'm thinking about when I'm working on these engagements with our clients is where are the points of inefficiencies. So, for example, in the Inland Empire, large spaces are significantly less expensive than small spaces. So, I have a client that I just helped consolidate three different buildings into a single building, and when you do that, you can achieve a 15, 20% savings on rent by leasing a very large, you know, multi-hundred, you know, half million square foot, million square foot type building versus having two or three different hundred or 150,000 square f- facilities. There are also incongruencies in the uh, clear height of a lot of these buildings. Say you're in a 32 foot clear building and it was built five years ago. You're the first tenant in the building your lease is coming up. The landlord wants to increase your rent by 80%. Well the way that these new construction 40 foot buildings, 40 foot clear buildings are priced from a sort of pallet position gain standpoint, they are priced incongruent to um, how a 32 foot. So there's, there's all of these inefficiencies and you need to come up with a very compelling reason why you would actually relocate, why you would incur downtime disruption, move costs to get from one building to another. And uh, these landlords are really smart. You can't just go in and say, hey, we might move to Texas, like, it it doesn't work like that. These people have heard every single story in the book. So you need to come up with real leverage, a real scenario that is compelling. And I, I tell my clients this all the time that I really view the role of a great broker in a transaction like this is to come up with a scenario that is actually legitimately compelling to the point where the management team of that company is shocked, like, oh, my gosh, I can't even believe that this is a reality. This is super compelling. How could we not consider this? And if you're able to accomplish that and have a real alternative, then your ability to negotiate um, increases significantly. But even so, even with maximum leverage, the zone of possible agreement on any of these deals is really only what the landlord believes in their moderate estimation that they can get from another tenant while incurring downtime and probably increased tenant improvements. And in a market where you assume that downtime is only two months or three months and tenant improvements are nominal, you don't have that much sort of renewal profit that the landlord is losing out by losing you to exploit. So it's, it's tough. And that's why these companies, unfortunately, end up paying a lot more on renewals.
1: Let me take a shot at this. Uh, I love everything you just said, Tucker, and I agree. Um, I would add that it's never been more important to work with a tenant-only broker Like this idea when the narrative is that rents are up and to the right and they're going to stay that way for the foreseeable future, you know, to get somebody outside that narrative, somebody somebody like us, you know, we just think differently, we speak, we say different things. We can't change the market dynamics, but get somebody who's outside of that fraternity. Um, And then I always say trust the process. Tenants, even in this market, tenants have more leverage than they realize. Landlords don't want vacant buildings. You know, what would you do if you didn't renew? Imagine this building burns down. We have no choice. We're gonna go do something. Okay, well then what well, if you had to move, what would you do differently? And just as you were alluding to, just go into this process with an open mind and I think we'll be surprised about what we find. Maybe we need to expand the geographic search, maybe we need to break up the requirement into pieces. There's a way through this, that's our job to navigate that, but we have more leverage than we realize. Get somebody who isn't conflicted, somebody who isn't a dual agent, and trust the process. Uh, You're often surprised by what we can accomplish, even in a very, very tight market.
3: Yeah, I'll add to that. You're, everything that has been said is exactly right. Tucker, the first thing I came to mind, I think you hit on it, but I, I truly believe it. It's, uh, I think it's the number one, the the number one piece. And it's you need to build, you need to have the right team in place, first of all. All brokers are not made the same and all teams are not made the same because you need to build a compelling story. And the story has to be executable. And And if you don't have that, landlords will see through it and they will call your bluff and they will test it and test it and test it. And to do that, you need to be out early. It's, no, it's really hard. I have clients every day that it's like it's hard to predict what's going to happen next year. Never mind what's going to happen two years or three years out. But it doesn't mean we have to actually we have to actually execute. If your lease is up in a few years, you have to start the process early, early enough to full, to fully understand the costs, right? So what are the costs of moving? And you need to make a compelling story around how do we bifurcate this? How do we move to a lower cost market? And really arm your team, arm your broker with real information. Because landlords don't like vacancy, but they also can call your bluff really easy if you haven't done the work. These are companies that are operating millions and millions of the dollar business. They're not going to move unless they unless they have a real executable strategy. And landlords are going to test that. And if you don't put it in place, you have no leverage because they know you're not going to put your business at risk over you know a, a 10, 20, 30 percent savings in your real estate costs. Right, so that's the key piece. And the other one is, is really around time. You need time. So with the semiconductor client, we found the right building and the right labor market that really helped them and saved them, potentially saved them massive amounts of money on the labor side. It didn't have the power that we needed, right? So we came up with a plan and we have the time to do it. We came up with a plan that, that extended all the way to the Department of Energy having to get involved to be able to guarantee a price, a fixed maximum price, to be able to upgrade another 40 megawatts of power to the building, which is just, it takes a long time. But the government is there and and they're a willing participant as long as you get to get the governor and the people involved at the state level to help facilitate this and bring it along the way. The utility companies on board, we figured that out real early, but you just need the timeline to be able to do it. And it's gonna be a result that's so much better than the other option that was available in the market that could have met the, the pure real estate demand.
2: I like that, Brian. And I, I'm going last, so I don't have much to add, but I want to be, <laughs> I'll add a few points, but I'll be brief because, I, again, I don't want to, I don't want our listeners, I think I'm just repeating what you both said, all of you said already. But I think time is a big one. And then I think I always tell our clients, like, if you want a tour guide, right like you can go find there's probably a (laughs) 100 brokers in seattle that can show you property there's they would love to get you in the car and go look at real estate and what i always tell people is like a provide me with enough time to help us collectively challenge the status quo meaning let's suspend disbelief just for a moment around what's possible because everyone out there for the most part to john your point are dual agents they serve landlords they serve brokers And they kind of start to believe this group think that rents are here, vacancies here, and this is where we're going. And it's not to suggest that I can myself change the marker, change what's possible. But I think to Tucker's point, um, if you allow your broker to lead, because that's really what you're paying them for to provide leadership and to challenge the status quo and to help you understand that there are other options beyond just for example, renewing. I've never, I've been doing this 18 years. I've never, had a client only have one option, never. Um, There's been times where there's been few, but never just one. And so I think as long as we are doing our job of being creative and thoughtful and providing solutions that maybe our clients aren't thinking about because they don't do this every day, I think that's really in in a part what leads to success. Um, And it's incumbent upon the broker to not just be a tour guide, um, because that's the easy part. The hard part is coming up with real solutions that can generate savings or at least
0: a better path forward than status quo. I I completely agree. Good brokers are excellent negotiators, know how to communicate with landlords, know how to tell the right narrative to help their client get a great outcome. But the extraordinary brokers know that the real value is putting themselves in the best possible environment to negotiate with real leverage, with real alternatives that are actually compelling to their client, and that makes all the difference in the result.